great to see you all here today. It is, it is one of the last Sundays of summer, and uh, that means that there's probably a lot of people visiting, a lot of people away, and we're really excited that you're here today. If you're just kind of checking out this church, maybe it's your first time in the building, um, I, I'm super stoked that you're here. This is a community where we're apprenticed to Jesus, we're trying to follow Jesus together to be his disciples, and uh, I'm really excited that you're here. Uh, this week, like Amelia alluded to, we're talking about the end times. Uh, hmm. um, yeah, whatever you're thinking, the person being up here is thinking something different and it's worse. Um, <laughs> last week, we talked about thankfulness and we all came up and put post-it notes on the back. That sermon was much easier than today's sermon. Today's sermon I've really wrestled with a fair bit, but um, we are going to make it through. And it's going to be awesome. I'm taking a joke break in the middle um, because it's a heavy sermon. So we're just going to hear like it doesn't fit at all. We're just taking a break and we're going to hear some jokes. Does anyone remember, um, speaking of movie franchises, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia? Yes. Okay. Our favorite in the Chronicles of Narnia is? Most people, it's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I happen to have a copy here. It's my wife's from when she was a child. Who's this guy on the front, this lion guy? Aslan. And what can you tell me about Aslan? I don't have chocolate bars this week, but I'm still asking questions. Does anyone can... What, what does Aslan represent in the Chronicles of Narnia? Jesus. Aslan is the Christ figure. Aslan at the end gives his life, spoiler alert, in order to save the people and to save Narnia from the curse. And uh, when, when we enter into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The world has been in a terrible lockdown of winter for so long. It was always winter, but never Christmas, and spring never came. And when spring finally starts to come, it's just because the presence of Aslan starts to melt winter. Just his presence is enough to undo the evil wintry grip that the queen had on Narnia. Early in the book, this is what Mr. Beaver says about Aslan returning. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. After a long, dark winter, the king promised to come back. And today's text, we're going to be reminded that Jesus, our king, has promised to return. We are in a time of waiting for the king to return. And in waiting, we are actually intended to have hope and joy and peace and anticipation as we wait for the return of the king. Come, Lord Jesus, is actually one of the most ancient prayers and most common prayers of the church throughout the last 2,000 years. So the difficult question is, is do we really want the king to return? Do we really anticipate and look forward to the return of Jesus? Let's pray as we uh, enter into this text together. And so, Lord, um, today we're, we're talking about something that I know can produce a lot of fear and anxiety. I, I know it has in me. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remove uh, those feelings that would get in the way of us hearing what it is that your word has to say. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. May you speak to all of our hearts today. May we encounter you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so like I said, this text can be a little bit tricky. Matthew, Jeff, and I were each preaching on the same text at all three of our North Langley campuses today. And we actually went back and forth on different parts of this text way more than we normally do. And so today, is, it's going to feel kind of choppy 
and it feels kind of random, and there's a piece, and then another piece, and it's like, how does that fit together? And so I'm going to try and keep us tethered to the big idea and to the main idea, because there's a lot of ways that we could get lost in tangents and kind of going different directions. And so um, because today's text, does anyone remember uh, a movie from the 70s called A Thief in the Night? Did that freak you out? Yes, the answer is yes, it probably did. Uh, more recent, so, so The Thief in the Night was a movie from 1972, and it was about the rapture, and all the Christians disappear, and then the world is in like decay. If you want to watch like cheesy, cringy movie night, it's on YouTube, and it has uh, Korean subtitles, is the version that I found. Um, as well, more recently, we have uh, Left Behind. There, there's the long series of books, and then the, the movie that starred, who starred in it? Well, there was the Nicolas Cage version, yeah, Kevin, uh, but also Kurt Cameron version, a little bit cheesy, well, both pretty cheesy. So, um, so this text has actually been used to try and scare people into heaven. And so there, there is the potential to feel some fear and some anxiety around it. But I want you to know right off the top that the intention of this verse was never to scare Jesus' followers. The intention of this verse was actually to to encourage and to remind people that Jesus was coming to make all things wrong right again. So the big idea, the main thing, is actually found in Luke 17.33. And it reads, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. So like I said, I'm going to try and tether us to this big idea today as we move through the text. It's the lens which I want to use to explore the passage. And uh, when we're tempted to kind of wade into the weeds of, of maybe some like interesting or scary or obscure things, we're going to keep coming back to this verse. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Our passage is entitled, The Coming of the Kingdom of God. Let's start reading in Luke 17, starting at verse 20. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom, sorry, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Okay, our text opens with Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and uh, if you've been in church for any length of time, you might know that Pharisees are kind of the adversaries of Jesus. They're the people that uh, would have been the religious leaders, but they had everything kind of skewed and backwards and mixed up. They would have been studying the prophecies of the scriptures to try and figure out when Israel, who was under Roman occupation at the time, when they would be restored. They were trying to return to kind of the glory days, to what we would call the Davidic kingdom when David was in charge. And they were getting impatient. So they asked Jesus, when? When is all this going to happen? When is this kingdom coming? And the expectation is is that they're going to see signs of Israel gaining power. They're going to start to see military might in Israel. And they're going to start to see charismatic leaders being able to rally people and and kind of lead the nation. And they're going to start to see cracks in the Roman Empire. And these are going to be the signs of the time that the kingdom is coming. But Jesus says that the kingdom is not going to come with those observable signs. It's not going to come when you expect. The kingdom of God is actually already here among you. Diane Chen says, embodied in the person of Jesus, sorry, embodied in the person and mission of Jesus, the kingdom of God has already been inaugurated, even though its full consummation lies yet in the future. So Jesus' answer is, look, Pharisees, the kingdom of God is actually here among you. It's not the type of kingdom that you were expecting or anticipating, so you're having a really hard time seeing it. 
See, it's passages like this and others where we get a framework for a piece of theology that we call inaugurated eschatology. Can you say that with me? Inaugurated eschatology. I'm not going to lie, this is like the one uh, like really deep theological principle I remember from like Bible school days, and, uh, and, and I've used it a lot. And we use it a lot because it actually is very helpful in explaining some things in the Bible that seem contradictory. And so inaugurated simply means to begin or to introduce. We think of the inauguration of a king or a queen. And eschatology just means the study of last things. So inaugurated eschatology is the study of the beginning of last things. And like I said, it's an important piece of theology because it helps us make sense of the kingdom of God, both being here as well as not fully present. That it's arrived, but we're still waiting for its fulfillment. It's both now and not yet. And so we, I have this diagram here that this is, it's, it's kind of hard to read, um, but we'll maybe put it up later and you can read it. But we live in this middle square that is the already not yet kingdom. We live here and, and it's the middle time. So we have like this old kingdom, which started when Jesus created the world and it ends when this world ends. And so here we have creation, we have all the things that happen in the Bible, then Jesus arrives, and then he still lives for this time, and then he goes back to heaven. And then we have this new kingdom that came with Jesus, and it invades and it overlaps the kingdom of the world. So we have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world overlapping one another. And this is how we can still sin and feel the effects of sin, but we are sinless and new creations when Jesus looks at us. It's how that we can still experience death, but we have eternal life. Because these kingdoms, they overlap. It's how we live in decaying bodies, but we are still new creation. And these two kingdoms overlap and they wage war on one another. But one is going to end and one will last forever. When Jesus returns, he puts an end to the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God will just reign forever. Tim Mackey says, the kingdom of God is how God is taking back his world. God is bringing the kingdom to us and putting the world back together. This is the mission and the point of Jesus' ministry. And for the Pharisees and those listening, it was really hard to understand. In fact, a paradigm shift is needed from a future-orientated eschatology to a realized eschatology in order for Jesus' audience to grasp, or sorry, in order to grasp his answer to the Pharisees. See, it's not just about a future end times. The end times are actually now. They, they started when Jesus came and ushered in the kingdom, and we live in this time where it's actually been the end time since Jesus arrived, inaugurating the kingdom of God. And so we can stop waiting for the kingdom, and instead we are intended to be agents of liberation for this world, bringing kingdom qualities to a lost place. We bring love and truth and forgiveness and peace and shalom and justice and mercy, and our mission as followers of Jesus is to make it on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we actually get to be involved in God bringing heaven to earth when we live out kingdom qualities and values in the world today. God uses you and I to advance his kingdom here on earth. Diane Chan also says, the kingdom of God is embodied in Jesus, who has been walking among friend and foe, showing them what God's reign is all about. Whether the Pharisees embrace it or not, the kingdom of God is in their midst, and it will proceed toward its full manifestation in due time. 
See, the kingdom of God is here, but we're still waiting for its fulfillment. You tracking with me? Okay, we're going to keep going. In verse 22, uh, then he says to his disciples, so his focus was on the Pharisees, then he shifts to his disciples, and he says, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is, but do not go off running after them. And so this is basically uh, Jesus saying, and, and it doesn't sound like it at first, but this is an encouragement to his disciples. This is meant to be something that, that kind of feeds their souls. He's saying a time is coming when we, when we, even us today, will wish that Jesus was still here. Well, we'll remember the good old days, and the disciples will be like, oh, remember the times when we were fishing with Jesus, when we ate and we, we had dinner with Jesus, when we walked in the garden with Jesus. And he's saying that people are going to long for those days again. And they're going to long for it so much that after he leaves, people are going to be like, hey, he came back. And people are going to want to go off running and chasing and be like, where is Jesus? Where has he come to? And he's saying that the kingdom of the world is going to continue and Jesus' followers at time might feel discouraged that Jesus isn't there. But if you hear of someone saying that Jesus has returned, he says, don't believe them. And, he's, and this is why, in verse 24, he says, for the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking about himself, in his day, in the day he returns, will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Jesus says, I'm coming back, and when I do, it's going to be amazing. Jesus compares the coming of days of the Son of Man to lightning flashing across the whole sky. Its course cannot be mapped out in advance, and it is not hidden, but overwhelmingly obvious as it lights up the horizon. So you can't predict where or when Jesus is going to show up. And you can't chart his path, so it's foolish to try. Chances are you've heard stories about people predicting the end times or predicting Jesus' return. Jesus is saying that spending any time considering these predictions is dangerous and pointless. Because when Jesus comes back to put everything back in its right place, everyone will know at once. It will be without warning, and it will be unmistakable. We actually have a word for this, and it's a word that's used to talk about making things right again. And it's actually the word judgment. We don't, we don't really like the word judgment. It has a bad reputation, and maybe fairly it has a bad reputation. But judgment is, is determining that something is wrong and deciding to make it right. Judgment is declaring, this is not how I intended it to be, and then doing something to fix it. So when we talk about judgment in the Bible, it's not necessarily punishment, but judgment that acknowledges what is broken and tries to fix it. And so when, God, when Jesus talks about God's judgment, it's not necessarily about that punishment. It's saying something is wrong, and now I intend to fix it. And how does he fix it? Verse 25, says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is referring to his death and resurrection, and all this has to take place before his return. Jesus is saying that he has a lot of work to do, and that work is creating a way for us to be able to have connection and relationship with God through Jesus conquering death through his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. Speaking about judgment, here's a fun section. Uh, just as was in the days of Noah, verse 26, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. 
It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Fun sermon, hey? Yeah, I know. So Jesus uses these kind of two stories from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, the, the story of Noah, where there's so much sin in the world. There's, and so Jesus, or sorry, so God brings judgment. And then there's Lot in the city of Sodom that lacked so much justice, and God showed up and judged that city. Because people in both of these instances were living in any way they wanted without any consideration for the things of God. They were defiantly going against God's will for the world. And judgment came when they weren't ready, like a flash of lightning. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage, they were buying, selling, planting, building, and no one was ready because they were consumed with themselves. They were doing whatever felt good. They were taking advantage of the oppressed. They were living only for themselves. David Garland says, life was progressing in an ordinary way when the destruction of the flood and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah occurred. There was no warning that an apocalyptic judgment was evident. All indications were that life was going on as usual. So too, the coming of the Son of Man will be without warning. No apocalyptic signs will clearly herald his appearance. So if you're just kind of planning on being like, well, I'm going to wait for the, the sun to turn blood red. Did anyone notice that this morning? Freaked me out thinking about the end times on my way here today. <laughs> so if you're waiting for signs to be like, okay, the end of the world is happening this week, and, and then is when I'll get right with God, and that's when I will start living out kingdom values, Jesus is saying that's a bad plan. There's an urgency to what Jesus is talking about, that being a part of the kingdom of God isn't, isn't something that we just delay. It's something that we participate in right now because the end comes without an obvious warning. And I want to remind us that this is actually supposed to be a positive encouragement for those who, is listening, for those who are listening to Jesus because things are going to be made right in the kingdom of God. So live your life as part of the kingdom of of God, not the kingdom of the world. See, the old way of living leads to pain and destruction and death. But living for the kingdom of God means a life where everything is going to be made new. This kingdom is fallen and broken, but the king is coming back to do something too wonderful to comprehend. Verse 31, on that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Do you remember what happened to Lot's wife? What happened? Yeah, she was escaping uh, Sodom, and God said, don't look back. And she looked back. She was connected. She, she had a longing for the old kingdom, and when it happened, she turned into a pillar of salt. This is a terrifying example of second-guessing whether or not you want to be part of the kingdom of God. Trying to hold on to this life well, being attached to the new life. Things that are part of this kingdom, trying to bring them into the kingdom of God. See, the point is, is that the kingdom of the world was never intended to fulfill you. Live so that if Jesus returned today, you're not looking back to anything that is a temporary thing. That you're not living in a way that's holding too tightly to things of the kingdom of the world, that when this present age ends, that you aren't trying to bring things into the kingdom of God that don't belong there. Again, the point of all of this, verse 33, is that whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. This is what the passage is all about. It's the big idea. 
that the kingdom of God is so good and so beautiful that it is worth losing even your life for. Diane Chen says, survival in God's kingdom is counterintuitive to earthly instinct. Well, the disciples trust that following Jesus, even to the point of death, is the pathway to eternal life. Well, they subscribe to the eschatological perspective that the physical life and all that it is are limited, but that the future promise of God is limitless. See, when we give our lives to Jesus, we become part of his kingdom. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we are given new life and invited to be part of the kingdom of God. This new life is infinitely, it is infinitely superior to anything that this world has to offer. So don't look back. There's only goodness and life ahead. It's a kingdom without death, and it is a kingdom that leads to life. This is actually a call to discipleship. At North Langley, we like to use the word apprenticeship. And this just means that that following Jesus means loving the things that he loves and hating the sin that he hates. It's seeking justice the way he seeks justice. It's looking to find freedom for the oppressed the way Jesus found freedom for the oppressed. It's learning to love those who he loves. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Okay, I promised joke time in the middle, okay? I don't have a lot of jokes in this sermon, so I just, I, I asked my friend Noah, who's in grade six, going into grade seven, he's not in the service right now, to send me some jokes. And here's what I got, okay. He said, did you hear the one about the restaurant opening on the moon? The food was great, but it had no atmosphere. <laughs> ah, see, that's pretty good, okay? Um, okay, here's another one. He said, what did the ocean say to the other ocean? Nothing, it just waved. Uh, See, good job, Noah. One more, one more. I like this one the best. It says, what do dentists call their x-rays? Toothpicks. See, get it? Yeah, pictures of teeth. Um, Okay, all right. Sorry, this sermon just like, it didn't have natural levity in it, so I just had to force it. Okay, let's jump back in. Verse 34, this is where it can get kind of weird. I tell you that on that night, two people will be in bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Okay, here's where we get some of the imagery that often gets associated with the rapture, with Christians all disappearing off the face of the earth, and that's where we get the movies like A Thief in the Night and Left Behind. I'm going to try to not go there today. Later, we are going to do a series all about the end times. I have it scheduled for right after I retire. (laughs) Yeah. Matthew might make me do it sooner, but who knows. So, but what, what I want us to think about when we read these verses, and what I hope sticks out to us, and it has been really sticking out to me, is that Jesus is coming here. That, it, that this is the, about the return of the king to this place. When we read the last two chapters of Revelation, we see that God is coming here to this world to make all things new with a new heaven and a new earth. He's coming back to, f- to bring the fulfillment of the kingdom of God and goodness to earth as it is in heaven. And I think Jesus is saying in these verses is that humanity will be divided when he comes again. I don't think he's necessarily saying people are going to disappear, though maybe that will happen. But what he is saying is that there will be division within the same family, within the same workplace. Jesus' mission is to save, but it also divides and separates. So the question is, are we chasing after a life based in the kingdom of the world? Or are we willing to lose our lives for a greater kingdom? And that's what discipleship is. That's what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. See, being a part of this new kingdom 
demands a decision from us. It requires something from us. Our faith is not intended to be something passive, something that we just observe, but it's supposed to be something that changes us and grows in us, something that makes us different than the world around us. And that's how Jesus divides his followers from the rest of the world. Okay, last verse. We've made it to the end. Where, Lord, they asked, and Jesus replied. So they're saying, where, Lord, where is this all going to happen? And uh, Jesus says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Okay, I'm not going to lie. Every commentary I read about this had a different translation or a different interpretation for what this meant. And so I'm not going to tell you what I think it means because there are just too many. I'm going to give you some examples of what some of the people said that I read. They said that this verse could just be um, talking about judgment and destruction. Some suggest that the disciples just don't get it in the same way the Pharisees asked the question about when the kingdom of God is. They now ask, where is the kingdom of God? And it's just kind of showing that they don't quite grasp what Jesus is saying. Some people are saying that the second coming is just going to be really obvious, the same way that if there are vultures out circling, it's obvious that there's a body there. Some think it's referring to Exodus 19, um, Exodus 19.4, where God actually uses eagles to carry people to himself. And that the word for eagle and vulture could be interchangeable. And so it's actually a positive thing about Jesus drawing people to himself. So that's another translation. To be honest, I'm not sure what it is. But what I am sure of is the big idea. That whoever tries to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life will preserve it. That there is something bigger than this life to live for. That this world is not the end. That the skin and bones that we have... John Foreman, one of my favorite artists, says that it's a rental. The skin and bones is a rental. So let's take a step back and look at this whole passage. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not totally fulfilled. But he's coming back to complete the kingdom and put an end to this old kingdom of sin and death. And so the time is short. So which kingdom are you focused on? R.C. Sproul says, be ready At any second, when you least expect it, our Lord is coming. Like the lightning that flashes across the sky, he will come with such rapidity as to leave us stunned and amazed. For many, that day will be the day of ultimate glory, but for others, it will be the worst day in history. Now, as I read this, I want to remind us again, I think it's the third or fourth time, that this verse is not to be intended to freak us out or to make us full of anxiety. But what we can think about is that in any moment the world could be made right. Sin could be obliterated today. Death could end today. We could see Jesus face to face today. Cancer, gone, sickness, healed, all hurt and brokenness made whole, relationships restored. So ideally for his followers, thinking about Jesus' return should only bring about thoughts of longing for heaven. See, Jesus tells us to not be like Noah and Lot, just thinking about eating and drinking and marrying, but that, but that being completely naive to the truth that Jesus is coming back. See, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to bring justice, and he's going to bring truth, he's bringing mercy, he's bringing love, but am I focused on all the kinds of things that don't matter? See, for Jesus, there's an urgency, and it's an urgency, I admit, I don't always feel. Sometimes I can feel actually embarrassed about how much I can get caught up in the things of this world, things that I'm not bringing to heaven with me, things that don't really matter. Many days, I might even hope that, I hope Jesus doesn't return today, 
There's still things I want to do. There are places I want to visit, things I want to buy. I need to remind myself of the, wor- myself of the words of Narnia. Again, where Mr. Beaver says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. And when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. See, it's actually a really good thing for Jesus to come back. And as a church, we need to learn to pray, come, Lord Jesus. We want your kingdom in its complete and total fullness. We want death to die. We want justice to be done. We want the new heavens and the new earth where you reign, Jesus, and sin and death are obliterated. Do you think we can learn to pray like that? In Philippians 1:23, Paul, while facing martyrdom, he says that he is torn between the two, between life and death, that he desires to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And so do we allow ourselves to truly believe that the promises of the kingdom of God and the life to come are so vastly superior to this present age that when given the option, we would relinquish this life at a moment's notice? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do we allow ourselves to believe that heaven will be that great? To be honest, I've always felt a little superficial to live my life just kind of waiting for heaven. To, to try and make it think like, oh, heaven is this great reward, so I'm going to try and live a better life now because heaven is coming. And I think that maybe a different way to look at it would be I need to consider heaven more because God has something in store for me there that puts things in perspective here. Not to make me behave and be a better person, but to remind myself that there is more to life than this. That his promise is that this new life is going to be better than anything we've experienced in this life. I hope thinking about Jesus' second coming seems good to you. So my challenge for us today, and what I think this verse might be trying to say is, can we put things back in their right order? Is there something that you are holding on to too tightly that is a part of this kingdom? Is there one area in your life that you're holding on to, maybe in an unhealthy way, that is out of place? Something that you might want to run back in the house to get if Jesus were to show up in a flash. Are you holding on to anything too tightly? Is it a home or that next bigger home? Is it a car? Is it a relationship or the hope of a relationship? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it influence? Is it looking a certain way? Having the right clothes? A number on a scale? A certain number of followers online? That next job? That next promotion? Is there anything in your life that God might be asking you to just loosen your grip on? One thing that's consuming you something that's linked to the kingdom of this world that is going to come to an end. May we learn to lay these things down at the foot of the cross. One final quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. 
Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. I'm going to invite you to stand and ask the worship team to come up. So the question that I want to leave us with today is, are we living in a way where we are ready for Jesus to come and be our king? Jesus invites you and I to be a part of his kingdom that has no end, a kingdom based in love and forgiveness and justice. It's not a kingdom that ends in death, but a kingdom that ends in life. It's not a kingdom about politics, but a kingdom about love. It's not a kingdom about anything other than a king who loves you and delights in you. It's a kingdom worth giving up the superficial temporary life for. It is a kingdom that is better and more meaningful and lasting than anything else we can find in this world. It is not a kingdom based in fear, but a kingdom based in love. You can trust that what God has planned for you is good, and you can trust him with your life and your very soul and with your eternity. We have an amazing prayer team, and today I want to challenge you to utilize our prayer team. They have a love for you, a love for prayer, and a love for Jesus. A topic like today's can bring up some difficult emotions, and maybe you need to admit those hard emotions before the Lord. Maybe you just need to do that alone where you are and, and during the last songs, but maybe you need to come and have someone pray over you. We have people on both sides at the front here that would love to pray with you. We also have people that are in the prayer room, which is just across the foyer. So let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we await the return of our King. May you first ignite in us hope and longing and anticipation for the fulfillment of your kingdom. Cast out fear and anxiety in the name of Jesus. May we be found living for our, our lives for the things of God and not consumed by the things of this world. We give you our lives. We give you ourselves. We give you our eternity. We give it all to you, Lord Jesus, our King. In your name we pray. Amen.